So yeah, welcome this evening. Uh, this is our second week of uh, our study in, on, on prayers in the Bible. We looked at a uh, prayer of Moses last last week, right after the golden calf incident. So, um, so this evening, Michael is going to be teaching, and we're going to look at uh, something in the, in the book of Ezra. And then uh, next week, we'll do Nehemiah, and then Daniel, and then uh, Yeshua's prayer in the book of John. So... Let's open with a word of prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this evening, for this opportunity to come together to look into your word. Lord, I pray that you would open each of our hearts and minds tonight to receive what you have for us through Michael. Pray that you would uh, speak powerfully through through him and that this would be a time of, uh, of good learning and edification for each one here. So we just uh, ask these things and commit this time to you in Yeshua's name. Amen. So tonight we'll be looking into the person of Ezra. And I've asked Nancy to read, so if you'd turn in your Bible to Ezra chapter 9. Ezra chapter 9, and if you have a Tanakh, Ezra is almost at the end of the Tanakh. And if you don't know, it's before Psalms in the Christian Bible, or the traditional Bible that you might be familiar with. Ezra chapter 9. And we're going to be reading verses 6 to 15. Okay, this is Ezra praying. Oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God. For our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the land, to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame as it is today. But now, for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within this holy that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery, for we are slaves. Yet our God has not forgotten us in our slavery, but has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving, to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruins, and to give us protection. Thank you. 
Thank you, Nancy. So there's at the top of the page of notes tonight, there's an overview of what you can expect through the month of April going forward, the next four weeks of the different intercessors and the prayers. And so for um, we'll be referring to different events within these, uh, these, the lives of these people. So it's important, if possible, you can read ahead and familiarize yourself with not just the prayer but with the events that led up to the prayer and why this kind of prayer was prayed and what was the heart of going on with the prayer, for example. So part of what I want to ask, and, and you know, you can just say I because I can't see if you raise your hands, but how many, how many have ever looked at the book of Ezra or have done a study on the book of Ezra? You can just say I. I. Okay, so there's a few of us. That's good. Um, it's it's kind of not necessarily the, the 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 book everyone reaches for maybe you know it's it's a book of many names at times and and so and so was the son of this person and the son of this person and at points you're just kind of like might yawn and nod off a few times but the book of Ezra has some great insights and part of understanding the book of Ezra is being able to understand how it how it was written and why it was written and the purpose of the two parts of it. Because Ezra basically has two parts. You could, you, you could say there was the part before Ezra and the part during Ezra. That would be like the basic part. But really it's, it's two journeys of the people of Israel. And they're returning to Israel. And there's a lot of historical points that are made, as well as the, the, the companions that go with Ezra. In other words, Ezra's part of what we see, and part of it is seen also in other books like the book of Haggai that we studied before, and the book of Zechariah. They kind of companion or overlap along with Ezra. And then Nehemiah also um, overlaps with part of Ezra as well. So the first journey, it comes about for the Israelites, and it was led up by Zerubbabel. They returned to the land, and it was really a God thing how people came back. Because does anyone remember the king that was spoken to, that, that gave the proclamation, let everyone return to Israel? Cyrus, very good. And Cyrus made that decree, and this first wave, the first part of Ezra, chapters 1 through 6, is speaking about what was happening with Zerubbabel, what was happening as the people came back, and, and how they reestablished the worship, the altar, how they reestablished the, the building of the temple, and re the restoration that God did in that. And what's really interesting in that is that God has a, a purpose and a plan. He usually does one thing, and then he does, the, in a sense, maybe the heavier thing. Because Ezra's journey came about 60 years later, when he comes about. And so Zerubbabel's part is chapters 1 through 6, and then Ezra's main focus is chapters 7 through 10. And Ezra goes up about 60 years after Zerubbabel, 
And he is, is, is going up to establish some things that are a little bit different. He has, first of all, he has the king's authority. The king Artaxerxes has given him the authority and given him even um, wealth as well as um, sacrifices to take to the temple so that this can be established. And now he's, Ezra setting out on a four-month journey. It's going to be kind of about right, right now, you know, like at the first of the first month, going up to the fifth month. Because in biblical thinking, this would have been the first month that we're in right now, the month of Nisan or the month of Abib. And this would have been the time as, as maybe the spring thaw has occurred. And, and they're headed up. They're headed up to make this journey over the next four months, and they'll get there in the summertime. And then as Ezra comes, he's going to start setting up some of the things that need to be in place in God's house. He's going to set up some different reforms. He's going to do some different assignments that need to be done among God's people. And finally, leading into this prayer, we see that there's a great offense that's occurred. Does anyone know what the offense is? Okay, one of them, one of the time. Okay, and it wasn't just the men per se, but who, which, which group of men is specifically mentioned? The leaders. It was the leaders. It wasn't just. And, and, he, and I'm not saying that that's not important, but we have to remember, these were people that were in charge of things, that were ordered and ordained and put in a position of authority to be able to have, to get things done for number one, but they also had a purpose. And so this is kind of the background of what Ezra's coming to. And if you read the end of chapter 8 and the beginning of chapter 9, they, they get to Jerusalem they weigh out the silver and the gold. People go and they offer sacrifices. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm you know, looking into this. I don't know that there's a specific time frame. I'm, I'm assuming maybe this is early in the morning. Early in the morning. They've just come off a long trip. They wake up the next morning in Jerusalem. They go up to the temple. They make their offerings. They're starting to settle things up, do, do things that need to be done. And right after this is done, some of the people come to Ezra and say, do you know what's happened? There's a great offense. People have started to intermarry with the... Who are they intermarrying with? Do you guys remember? Pagans. Pagans, but it was the people specifically that were already there in the land. And it's, it's very reminiscent of Genesis because it was the Canaanites and the Moabites and the Hittites. And you have this list that follows of the different uh, tribes and families that they had intermarried with. And what's really interesting is when Ezra hears about this, he's very upset. And not only does he, you know, rip his clothes and pull some hair out and having a really bad day, but he sits down without saying anything until maybe evening. Till the very till it's time to do the, the last sacrifice or the evening offering the evening burnt offering, that he finally stands up and makes a prayer. And I think there's a lot of wisdom in that, because when we come to something, when we come to an offense, 
we a lot of times want to act out of immediate emotion. But Ezra doesn't make it that. He sits and he waits before he says anything. He's upset about it, sure. And, and I've noticed myself, sometimes you get some bad news, whatever it is. A lot of times the Lord wants you to sit and wait on it and decide, how do I want to proceed? And one of the biggest things we can learn from Ezra, he goes to the Lord with it in prayer. It's an important covenant value is instead of just acting on what we think needs to be done, instead of maybe going and confronting someone that we think is in the wrong, he's quiet for a while and then he prays. And, and it's really a sign of maturity when someone can, in a sense, as the scripture tells us, let us be swift to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. Because of why? Does anyone remember the rest of that? It's almost like in stereo. <laughs> Very good. The anger of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God. And, that's, and I really think that's kind of where we get to as we come to this prayer of Ezra. And coming into it, he first starts by saying he's ashamed and he's blushing. And the words here, if I'm saying them right in Hebrew, bush, 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 yeah. and is it kamal or chamal? And these words we find in Scripture together. These are not just something we see once in Scripture. I, when, I, when I did a word study, I noticed there was about 17 times this was mentioned. In fact, let's look at one of them. Turning, turn, if you would, to Psalm chapter 40. Psalm chapter 40. And we're going to look specifically at verses 13 and 14. And this is not in your notes, forgive me. Some of this study was kind of coming to me at different points. And because I get here earlier than all the revelation comes, I kind of sometimes insert later. But Psalm 40, verses 13 and 14. And uh, maybe Art, do you have that for us? Yes. Uh, there might be, yes. 13 and 14? Yes. For numberless evils surround me. My iniquities engulf me. I can't even see. There are more of them than hairs on my head, so that my courage fails me. You plead, Adonai, to rescue me. Adonai, hurry and help me. May those who seek to sweep me away be disgraced and humiliated together. May those who take pleasure in doing me harm be turned back and put to confusion. Okay, so the two words here are the grace, uh, I'm sorry, disgraced and humiliated is what, as Art has read. It might be different, slightly different in your Bible, but this is kind of how Ezra starts his prayer, is the recognition of the fact that this is, he's not having a good day with what's happened. He's embarrassed to have to come to the Lord in this. And when we ourselves take ownership of our sin, 
This is the this is the posture at times we need to have. That's why I've called tonight's study the way of repentance, because ultimately what's happening in Ezra's prayer is a lot of repentance, and he begins that repentance with both confession and ownership. Confession and ownership. These are two important things when we come to the Lord with our sin. I messed up, Lord. I stepped on somebody's toes. I hurt them. It was my fault. I didn't look where I was stepping me. And that's part of what Ezra looks at here. Seven times, seven times we have the, the um, first person plural noun of either our or we in these, just these first two verses, verses 6 and 7. Over and over again, Ezra recognizes he's involved in this. It's not just these people. It's also his sin. He's involved with what happens to the community as a whole. It's not just us and them, but our and we. We're the ones that are at fault here, Lord. This is our sin. And two times he says, our sin, our guilt. And these words in Hebrew... A bone, or sin, or you might have it trespass, iniquity, wickedness. A bone has to do with the twisting. The twisting or the perverting. And then the word, and I hope I'm saying this right, ashama. Asham. 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 And isn't this connected with guilt? But it's, I believe it's also close to the word, same root where we get the word for guilt offering, if I'm not mistaken. So this is the same idea. It's Ezra sees twice, he mentions, it's not just them. It's our sin. It's our guilt. And he also recognizes that it's not just because of him, but it's because of the father's. It's because of our priests. It's because of our kings who have failed the Lord. And it's interesting that he picks those three. Our fathers, our kings, and our priests. Each one of those people had God's authority placed on them to be in charge of a certain section of people. Whether it was the father who was in charge of the family. The priest who was to be in charge of the worship. Or the king who is to be in charge of the nation. Each of these three, Ezra says, our king, our father, our, our priest is the one that's failed here, Lord. And it's, it's interesting because he doesn't try to make any mince with it. He looks at it as being everybody's fault. There's enough blame to go around here for everybody. Not just looking to blame one group over another, but there's enough blame to go around for everybody in this sense. And so part of the thing when we look at Ezra's prayer is he's also, it's important to look at our leaders and learn to view them with balance. Like the old adage in football says, I'm not sure if what happens, the quarterback gets all the credit when somebody wins or when it's going good. But when everything's wrong and the team loses, it's all his fault. 
He's ruined it for everybody. And many times we treat our leaders the same way. When everything goes well, maybe the leader gets more credit than what he deserves. And when everything goes poorly, maybe he gets a lot of the blame. And it's not a balanced way that the Lord, I think, wants us to view it. Because many ways, our leaders are to be like a player coach. They're supposed to work alongside with us. And I will say, leaders are going to be held to a higher standard of judgment when they come before the Lord. But leaders are also human. And I haven't known any human, except the one that they speak of in the Bible named Yeshua, that didn't ever have a point of falling short and maybe messing things up and sinning. And so it's important to look at our leaders with that balance of saying they're humans, yes, they're in charge of things, but even they are going to have their bad hair days, and they're going to mess stuff up. And a lot of people use it as an excuse to say, I'm not going to be under any kind of leadership. I'm not going to be subject to anybody. I'm going to be the Lone Ranger. I'm going to be the Pilgrim, John Wayne, or the the Rambo-type character who has no authority, who's going to be out there doing things on his own. How well has that worked out for them? Because authority can be a blessing just as much as we see it being a curse. Because I think part of the reason that God uses leaders, and at times he likes to show us our leaders' flaws, is so that we'll learn to pray for them. We'll learn to hold them up. We'll learn to give them grace when they mess things up. And so it's an important balanced view of trying to look at leaders that way and not just look at them as like, they've messed it up, I'm out of here, I'm taking my ball, I'm going home, I'm not going to be a part of this group anymore. And it is a, it is a challenge for us to learn to, to see leaders in that light. Now, in his prayer too, he acknowledges the punishment that the Lord has given upon them. And there, there are four different, different things that are focused on. He has the sword, he has captivity, he has, they've been the plunder, but most important, they've been ashamed. They've they've become disgraced. Why does he say that? Why is that, why is that a place to necessarily park? Why are they ashamed? Well, does everyone remember, like Rabbi Ham was talking about the Shabbat, the old Vidal Sassoon commercial? What, does everyone remember what that said? When, when you look good, we look good. And that's the same thing here with the Lord. The reason they should be ashamed is because when they looked bad, the Lord looked bad. The Lord ultimately looked bad. And it's, it's kind of a sobering prayer and a sobering idea that they were ashamed before the Lord because of what had taken place. They were ashamed. And God wants to do things in the midst of that to help us to understand that he can work through those things. And Ezra's prayer isn't all just downers. You know, you could look at the prayer and just say, boy, this is like, uh, you know, okay, I'm depressed now. Let's go from depression to, boy, I feel really good now. And you keep going on and on, and you might feel that way. But Ezra doesn't do that in his prayer. He's not all looking to, you know, just weary his hands out. 
He's also affirming and he's giving thanks for what the Lord has done. What are some of the things the Lord did? And specifically, I'm looking at verses 8 and 9 now. What are some of the things the Lord has done for the people? He didn't forsake them. Why is that big? Amen. It's very huge. It's a big piece of who God is. It's a big piece. Not only did he not forsake them, he gave them the ability to come back to their home and begin to rebuild. And if you have the King James here, it's kind of interesting. There's this word, he has given us a nail. Did you guys read that? Those that have the King think, what is that about? He's given us a nail. It's, it's, it's to say that God has established us and given us a place. He's joined us to a place where we could be. And this is part of what we want to see here at Yeshua Zion. We want to be not only identified with the God of Israel, but we want people to identify us with a particular place, a particular building, so that we have credibility That's something that happens when you have a building, when you have a place that you can call home. You have credibility of what the Lord's doing in your life. You have credibility in that. And it's something the Lord truly wants to see established. And Ezra gives thanks to the Lord for doing that. But at the same time, he affirms to them, we are slaves. Why does he call themselves slaves? And I'm sorry if that's a derogatory word. Some people think of it in terms of maybe it should be more servants. or, or But it's basically the same word in Hebrew, avadim, servants or slaves. What is, what is that about? Why do you think he says we're slaves? Any thoughts? Well, a lot of times, as Rabbi Haim was saying again this last week, and there were a lot of good lessons, but you can take the, the people out of Egypt, but you can't always take the Egypt out of the people. And this is part of why we need God's body, is because the fact is, as Yeshua says it even, you're going to be a slave to something. You can either be a slave to righteousness, or you can be a slave to sin. You've got to make a choice. Because you're going to be a slave to something, whether you know it or not. But the big thing is, what are you going to serve? What are you going to serve? And at this point, for the people, they've been serving what they've wanted. And it's not been effective for them. It's not been an effective method for them. They've come into the land, and they've been blessed, and they've had the Lord's favor, no doubt about it. But at the same time, there are still ways... And practices they're holding on to that they need to let go of. They need to let go of. And it's not easy. It's not easy. Part of the picture is they need to understand what a relationship looks like in the Lord. And there's this contrast in our relationship with the Lord of defilement and holiness. (laughs) 
Now, part of the fact is we live in a defiled world. I'm sure I don't have to shake my stick for anyone to get that, right? We're in a defiled world. And because we haven't left the world, there's always going to be points where we're going to be defiled. It's just something we can't escape, whether it's our eyes, our ears, you know, whether it's what we say. There's always going to be defilement there. And we don't look to park on that, but we look to be the people of God. And we look to identify with God's holiness. And it's not easy. What? Can I say something? Absolutely. About this slavery thing. Uh, in world, world, world and today's days, when every time a war ended, usually it's like victory on one side and opposite side, let's say World War II. Right. When World War II ended, about 2 million German people was in Soviet Union, and they were a lot of them died because of very hard work. Only 5,000 people came back to Germany out of 2 million people. All these people were killed or died from very hard work in prisons and everywhere. And also in ancient world, the same thing. When these kids w- went to the new lands to kind of like get these lands, they always had slaves out of it. So they took wives, like free wives, whatever. So in this case, he said that uh, kings of Persia, to extend grace on us, but they still were not 100% citizens like everybody else. Like no, they weren't. That's, that's true. They still were living under authority. That's a good point as well. That's definitely a good point. Because they still had to learn, live under the Persian authority, even though they were living in the land. And that could, that could definitely be part of what Ezra's talking about as well. Part of it could even be him seeing it more globally. There are still people who are under slavery and in captivity. He could be saying that as well. But I think for the most part, he looks at it in terms of we're being slaves to our sin. We're being slaves to the very thing that we need to get released from. And I really believe that Ezra is making a prayer here of repentance, of wanting to ask God to help the people to repent, to repent from what they've been doing. And specifically, we see the admonition of how things began wrong in Judges chapter 3. Let's turn to Judges chapter 3. And look at this in verses 1 through 4. And can I call on Renee? Judges 3, 1 through 4. Judges 3, 1 through 4. Now these are the nations that Adonai left to test all Israel who had not experienced any of the wars of Canaan. It was only in order that the generations of B'nai Israel might learn from war, which they had not experienced before. These nations included the five Philistine lords and all the Canaanites 
Um, they were for testing Israel to know whether they would obey the mitzvah of Adonai, which he had commanded their fathers by Moses' hand. Uh, uh, two, two verses more, I believe. I think I have the wrong okay. verses here in my notes copy. Um, but B'nai Israel settled among the Canaanites and Hittites and Amorites and the uh, Berizites, the Hittites, Hivites, and the Jebusites, and took their daughters for themselves as wives, gave their own daughters to their sons, and worshipped their gods. B'nai Israel did what was evil in Adonai's um, eyes, forgot Adonai their God, and worshipped the that's that's good. So part of the picture here that was taking place that Ezra had remembered, or Ezra's referring back to, I believe is this passage in Judges in which the Lord commands Israel to not intermingle with these different nations. And this intermingling, I mean, this is not that God is against um that God is against interracial marriage. He's not against that. But it, what he's against is if it takes him people away from serving him. That's ultimately the goal that God is at, against. If, it, if anything in our life takes us away from serving the Lord, that's not right. And there could be good things in our life that we think are right and are proper, but if they take us away from the Lord, they're not good. They're not good. Yes, that could be part of the concept of not being equally yoked. That's correct. And the Torah specifically talks about that. You shouldn't put together a donkey and an ox to have them work together. Why? Because it's cruel. It's, it punishes both animals. One won't pull his weight. One won't be able to do the same equal amount of work that's involved. It's the same thing with someone who marries an unbeliever today. If they are not under God's covenant, they're always going to have a different set of values that will pull on the other person, and they won't be able to walk the same out for the Lord. And it's a challenge. It's a challenge. But I want to emphasize, God isn't against total uh, intermarrying. He's against something that would take people away from him. Because we all know that idols just aren't made of stone and wood. We know they're alive and well and in other ways. And part of this passage, God was saying, you're going to live in a land, but you're going to represent me. You're going to represent me. You're not going to represent the people of Egypt. You're not going to represent the people that have been living in the land, but you're going to represent me. And that's what happened with the people. The people could not live for the Lord. And they embraced other things that were not of the Lord. And because of that, they needed to repent and turn around. And part of that idea is that we need to always see our identity, who we are as in the Lord. It's not about being you know, part of this family or part of this culture. A lot of people come to Yeshua Tzion and say, it's so great that you guys recognize Jewish things. And it's really not about the recognition of Jewish things. It's about serving our God and identifying ourselves as saying, no, really what we're about here 
is being about the Messiah, and we want to reflect who he is in our life as being his children and learning to live for him. And Ezra's so neat about this because he looks at this in terms of two things. He looks at it, what I like to call the vertical. The vertical. And what I mean by that is you have Ezra and his generation, but he also notices the people that have come before him, his fathers. And part of the reason the fathers are important is because God made them promises. And God made a covenant with them. But also that's important are the children who come afterwards. They're to be raised in the fear and to be brought into that same covenant. Ezra understands that in his prayer. He makes it a multi-generational thing. Remember how you helped our fathers, Lord? Help us too. And help us impart things to our children too. So they'll live for you. And that's part of what Ezra's trying to identify with in what he's talking about in this prayer. But I want to look at repentance. Repentance is a, such a huge thing. And sometimes it's, it can be complicated for a lot of people. But really, it, it's very simple. Repentance is very simple. And I like to call this the three R's of repentance, per se. Maybe there's four in here as well. The three R's. First of all, you have a willingness to have regret. Regret for what you've done. Scripture talks about that. It might be something simple like Matthew 5, 4. Blessed are they that mourn. For they shall be comforted. What do they mourn? They mourn their sin. They know that their sin separates them from the Lord. And we see even in 2 Corinthians 7. That there's an, a regretfulness or a sorrow. That is on the world's behalf. I'm really sorry this happened to me. Because now I'm in a bad place. But that's not real repentance. Real repentance. That's just the beginning part. Is having that mournfulness, that sorrow before the Lord. And then the next part of that is the willingness to reject the behavior. We reject the behavior. Not the person. Important thing to say. We reject the behavior, not the person. Okay? The Lord always loves the person. May not like his behavior, but he does he always loves the person and cares for the person. And that should be our heart too, is God doesn't stop loving us because we mess up. He just wants us to, to, to learn to give up the behavior that causes us to mess up. And, and we can look at that from 1 Corinthians 5, where Paul makes a very strong statement where he says, Don't you know that you are God's people and that you should cast out the old leaven and be the new leaven that God has made you? Celebrate the Passover, not with the old leaven, but celebrate it with the, with the matzah or the unleavened bread of grace and truth that God has given to us. Part of that is saying, I reject that behavior that I was doing because the behavior was wrong. The behavior is wrong. And then 
In some ways, the last one is the resolve. And I guess you could also put it in there with and replace. Because I think of how Isaiah puts it. It's not enough to stop doing what's wrong. We need to learn what's right. Isaiah 1 says that. Don't just stop doing what's wrong. Learn to do what's right. And it's such an important kingdom principle is when we say, I'm no longer going to do these things, that we have something else that we put in there instead. We don't just look to say, I'm not going to drink anymore, or I'm not going to smoke anymore, or I'm not going to be this way anymore. It's, I'm no longer this person, I'm this person. It's kind of replacing the behavior with good behavior. And by that resolve, it's not something we can do on our own. It's something we constantly need the Lord's help for. It's not that we can say, I'm going to do this. I'm strong enough. I can beat sin. You know, It's not that at all. It's that we ask the Lord to come and help us. We resolve to make the Lord it the Lord's problem. And the Lord to give us the answer to the problem. A lot of that has to do with how basic repentance is. Repentance is is that regret, that reject, that resolve, and that willing to come and and be restored, to resolve that this is not how our life is going to be anymore. And the Lord is going to replace us with the right behavior. I I know I'm running close to time. How much? Ten minutes. Ten minutes. So I'll begin to conclude here because I think it's important. Ezra had an effective prayer. At the end of his prayer, he reminds not just the Lord, but I believe his hearers heard the prayer. Because when we look in chapter 10, we see the reaction of his hearers. It had an impact on his prayer. It wasn't just a private prayer. It was something that was very public. And we see how the hearers reacted to that. And God... God has good things when we come together and pray. When we come, and I know some of you came in, we ended up praying a little long, maybe that was of the Lord tonight, I don't know. But the Lord has good things to do when we gather in corporate prayer. And, and, and this is a chance, I'll, I'll say it again, if you don't know when the corporate prayer times are, we meet for prayer before this Bible study, we meet Shabbat morning at 9, 8, 9.15 well, 9 o'clock with the worship team, 9.15 in the upstairs classroom, we meet to pray for the service. These are opportunities we want to see people come and engage and pray because the Lord wants to do good things through our prayers. And so, I mean, it's great when people come on time. That's one of the things we've been praying for years and years. But I would actually say, how about coming even earlier? Because there's great opportunities that the Lord has when people walk in the door early. Maybe so-and-so sick and they aren't able to do their regular thing they usually do. Or maybe so-and-so's late and they are not there to do the thing they do. And it's an opportunity that someone else can say, Oh boy, I can stand up and greet people as they come in the door. Or I can help set up the showbread table. Whatever it is. God has great things when we come early and look for him early in those opportunities. 
And so, uh, you know, it is, it is important to conclude. Ezra recognizes that people have sinned. It's, it's not something he's looking to say, God, beat them up, zap them, you know. But he's looking at it in terms of, you're a God of mercy. You're a God that wants to go always toward mercy. That's your M.O. You've shown us already so much favor by what you've done. That you got us to Jerusalem. Help us with what comes next. And so I don't know. That, that's all I had. If you guys have any comments or questions. Well, uh, Judy, would you close us in prayer tonight? Yeah.